Hello everyone, welcome to Beyond the Block. This is your boy Derek Knox here. This week it will be just a solo episode, so you will have to listen to me and endure to the end. Hopefully this won't take very long. Brother Jones is not here to tell me to stop talking, so I can talk as long as I want. But anyway, we'll see how this goes. Hopefully I can make this quite short. I know people have places to go and things to do and whatever. But this week we're talking about the second half of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 6 and 7 in Matthew. So let's talk a little bit about some preliminary things. Uh, Some of these preliminary things have to do with uh, what's going on. First of all, Lent is coming up. Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. And I know a lot of Latter-day Saints don't have this concept of Lent, but based on all the things we have to give up, we actually do Lent 365 days of the year instead of just the 40 days. But anyway, so think about Lent as a preparation for Easter. So if you do anything for Lent, let it be something that will help you anticipate and be eager for the arrival of Easter, which is the highest festival in the Christian church year. So that's all I'm going to say about Lent right now. We will see what happens. It is still Black History Month. I wanted to say some things about Black History Month. Number one, Black History. We need Black History every month, right? We can't just isolate Black History and we we get it over with in February and then forget about it the rest of the year. This is something that needs to be fully integrated into everything we do um, because that is how... Uh, that is how we we actually honor black history, really, really, especially if we do the history of the United States, the history of literature, the history of music, the history of anything. We can't uh, just segregate black history to one piece of it and, oh, we're going to do the, the multicultural thing to get that out of the way. And then, then we get back to the real stuff, which is dead white men from Europe. Like that's not that's not fair. The other thing I want to say about Black History Month is black history isn't just the bad things and the sad things. A lot of white folk might be tempted to think about black history as, oh, civil rights and slavery and segregation. But there's we've got centuries of black excellence that needs to be named. Excellence in art, in literature, in music, in cuisine, in uh, science and technology. There's just a lot, uh, a lot of things that there's a lot of good uh, to be named as well. So don't just think about oh it's the bad things. There's a lot of black excellence that needs to be named as well. I want to talk about a few resources for people. I just heard that Grant Hardy, who is probably in my view the world's leading academic scholar on the Book of Mormon. There are a lot of apologists on the Book of Mormon. There are a lot of people that have like devotional and spiritual writings on the Book of Mormon, uh, and there, there's a place for that. But we have very little real academic work on the Book of Mormon um, compared to the Bible, for example. We've done that for since the Enlightenment and even before. But anyway, so Grant Hardy will be coming out with a fully annotated academic scholarly edition of the Book of Mormon this September in time for the Book of Mormon year next year, it seems like. And I look forward to this. I highly respect Grant Hardy's work. His book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, is one of the best guides to the literary and narrative features in the Book of Mormon. I'm very excited to see what what will happen. This will be published by Oxford University Press. And uh, yeah, I, I think it will be really great. The second thing I want to point out is this book called the ESV, which is English Standard Version, the ESV Panorama New Testament. And the thing about this Panorama New Testament is that it uses a large page size and it has carefully... Uh, aligned the page breaks so that you can see as much of the New Testament comprehensively within a two-page spread as possible. The print isn't that small. It is kind of a medium-ish to small-ish print, but the pages are huge. So within a two-page spread, which is what we call the verso of one side and the recto of the other, I don't know what it is, but the 
you know, the, you're looking at a two-page spread with on the left and without having, basically, without having to turn pages, you can read 17 of the books of the New Testament. Without turning any pages, you can look at 17 entire books of the New Testament based on the way the pages are are divided and the way it's typeset. And the other books that are, the other 10 books, the longer ones, those are consolidated in as few pages as possible and when they are divided they're divided at the chapter break so you don't have to turn pages between so for example you get all of the sermon on the mount matthew 5 6 and 7 all on one two page spread i'm like this is really brilliant because then it helps you to see things in context instead of taking golden nuggets and like oh i'm going to take this little verse like a little cherry and in and take it out of context and take it to heart and make it you actually see it in its context you can see how you can trace for example how one word is used in the entire letter of one of paul's letters um well i mean not the longer ones because those those have multiple pages but you can see it more clearly like what it's doing what this verse is doing in its paragraph what this paragraph is doing in its context in this section, what it's doing in this chapter, what is this chapter doing in this whole epistle? And so you can see the flow of the argument so much better. Uh, It's divided into paragraphs. It's not verse by verse, so you can see the paragraphs. I just want to uh, consider that. I think it's on sale at the Christian Book Distributors for something like $15. It's a really good idea to get a panoramic view, a, a zooming out view of the New Testament when uh, so much so much of our culture wants us to just zoom in on a on a verse or a word or something like that and there's a place and time to do that but we also want to zoom out and see everything how it's going in its context how it's balanced by something else and i think balancing is uh, one of the hardest things to do in our culture where we're um, where we're sort of primed to just take one verse and run with it anyway I want to talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in chapter 6 and 7 of Matthew. And I want to focus a lot on what I'm going to call externals versus internals. So many people want to have this checklist culture of what is visible, what's on the outside, what's external, what is superficial. And Jesus is trying to get us to lean into the internal, to go deeper, to figure out, well, what's inside. You can't just fix the outside. In fact, the outside might not even matter if you fix the inside. So for things like giving to the needy, uh, fasting, laying up your treasures in heaven, uh, all of these things, he's trying to shift us away from focusing on the superficial or the external. And I want to connect this with racism because racism focuses on the superficial and the external to use arbitrary superficial divisions to divide God's children and then do awful things with that. Uh, I, I think it is Jane Elliott who talks about how, um, yeah, racism doesn't really make sense uh, because you're judging people based on a pigment a natural pigment that's in their skin that's supposed to be there, right? There's nothing wrong with melanin. In fact, there's, there might be something wrong if you don't have enough melanin, depending on um, how much sun you're getting. But anyway, my point is there's a chemical that's supposed to be here in our skins. Um, I have some melanin, uh, but not, not, as, not as much as I could. But anyway, my point is, why does it even make sense to divide people based on something as... Super, literally as superficial, skin deep as skin color. That makes no sense to me. Um, anyway, and in connection with this, I want to read a very brief statement by President Hubie Brown in 1963. He used his position as, I think he was the first counselor in the first presidency at that time, Uh he might have been second counselor. He was both, and I can't remember which one he was. But he was one of the counselors in the presidency, in the first presidency. And this is not an official church statement, but he said it at a time where this is something that needed to be said, and many people have taken it to be somewhat authoritative. 
So here's what President Brown said. Quote, during recent months, both in Salt Lake City and across the nation, considerable interest has been expressed in the position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the matter of civil rights. We would like it to be known that there is in this church no doctrine, belief, or practice that is intended to deny the enjoyment of full right, civil rights by any person, regardless of race, color, or creed. We again say, as we have said many times before, that we believe that all men are the children of the same God and that it is a moral evil for any person or group of persons to deny any human being the right to gainful employment, to full educational opportunity, and to every privilege of citizenship, just as it is a moral evil to deny him the right to worship according to the dictates of his own conscience. We have consistently and persistently upheld the Constitution of the United States, and as far as we are concerned, that means upholding the constitutional rights of every citizen of the United States. We call upon all men everywhere, both within and outside the church, to commit themselves to the establishment of full civil equality for all of God's children. Anything less than this defeats our high ideal of the brotherhood of man." Close quote. So, I could talk on and on about this. Uh, there's ways that this statement isn't enough. There's ways in this uh, that we would change some of the wording now. Um, but we do have a, a bold statement at a time when many people in the church fought against civil rights. Uh, there, uh, we, we talk a lot about the priesthood and temple discrimination within the church, but we don't hear a lot about how many leaders of the church actually campaigned for, or I, I should say campaigned against civil rights in, in the secular world. Like, I don't even understand that. And President Brown is saying we have no basis for that, yet people like Benson and uh, Stapley and Mark Peterson and others, uh, I think Harold B. Lee, uh, others actively worked against, not just sat out the civil rights movement, but spoke against it. And I'm like, well, that needs to be named. And this reminds me of something that Abraham Joshua Heschel said, a very important rabbi who worked with Dr. King and was – let me just also say that at this point, Jews, many of them had come from Europe after World War II and were refugees in the United States and elsewhere. And so within just 15 to 20 years uh, before, Jews were in Europe subject to the most awful racism, right? And so maybe we count Heschel as white, but there is a sense in which he's not speaking from the cheap seats about racism. Here's what Abraham Joshua Heschel said. I also think this was in 1963 in his uh, sermon on religion and race. He says, quote, What is an idol? Any god who is mine but not yours. Any god concerned with me but not with you is an idol. Close quote. That is so important. I'm going to say this last part again. Any god who is mine but not yours. Any god concerned with me but not with you is an idol. Question mark. I mean, close quote. Uh, that, I think, is if, if God is the god of white people, if God takes the side of white folks, if God takes the side of straight people, if God doesn't have anything for gay people, that is an idol. If you literally worship a straight couple, that's idolatry. If you worship heterosexuality, if you worship the heteronuclear family, that is idolatry. God is bigger than all of this. And we have narrowed God and fashioned an idol of our own making, worse than the golden calf, right? If we have a God of racism, if we have a God that loves white folk better or loves uh, straight people better or loves men better than women, right? All of these prejudices are idolatry. Uh, let me just, now that I'm talking about it, I got to quote something else from uh, from Abraham Joshua Heschel. Here's what, uh, oh, I got to find that now. Oh, well, maybe just read the whole sermon. I can't even find where I, where I, uh, oh yes, yeah, here's, here's where he says it, okay? 
Here's his under, here's what he says about racism. Quote, few of us seem to realize how insidious, how uh, how radical, how universal an evil racism is. Few of us realize that racism is man's gravest threat to man. The maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason. The maximum of cruelty for a minimum of thinking. Close quote. And I just think this is so brilliant how Rabbi Heschel points out a maximum of hatred like some of the greatest, gravest injustices. Wars, slavery, um, genocide. It's like the worst evils of the 20th century of, of ever, right? are based on a minimum of reason, that is, a difference in ethnicity or skin color. Right? That the maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason, I just don't understand that. And this ties back into what Jesus is talking about, the the externals versus the internals. Anyway, um, yeah, I just don't understand racism, right? And now I have to say, I have to name that I'm complicit in, in racist structures. I have uh, absorbed white supremacy. Um, I'm working on that, right? I'm not claiming that I, everything I do is going to be perfect. But I do claim to be accountable. I do claim to be uh, um, accountable to, to folks of color. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to do, do what I can, uh, try to make sacrifices where I can to divest my own privilege for the sake of those um, uh, those who would benefit by that. Anyway, so let's get back to back to this giving to the needy in six one through four. And I want to talk about this principle that Joseph Smith had where he said, by proving contraries, the truth is made manifest. And this is really where it where we have to have moral development, where we have to have faith development. We have to have skill and wisdom and experience to know which to apply where and how and how these things moderate one another or when to apply what. You can't just do a checklist, right? You can't just robotically have a list of commandments, you check off the commandments, and you're done. You have to know how to apply what. And I think this gets in gets into play when well, when we ask questions like, well, what are vain repetitions well what does it mean to uh what does it mean to to do the do these good things in secret right um what does it mean to pray in secret what does it mean to give in secret what does it mean to fast in secret like do we violate this when we when we make that manifest and what i want to say is not necessarily this is tricky this is complicated this is where it takes nuance and maturity and wisdom there are times when you have to apply what might be considered a contrary right here in the chapter just before. This is Matthew 5, verse 16. This is after he says, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. And here's 16. It says, um, oh, wait, let me do 15 and 16. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. So yeah, there are certain things that you need to do secretly, right? Uh, people ask, well, is it wrong to advertise or to, to name the good that the church does or uh, the humanitarian work? Um and I, it depends on the it depends on the outcome. It depends on what it does. It depends on the effect. If the effect is one of self righteousness, where you're glorifying yourself and you're saying, "Ooh, look how good I am," then that's not the right reason. But if the effect is, it doesn't say, "Let your light shine so that you can be glorified." It says, it literally says, "Let your light shine before peoples so they can see your good works and give honor." to your Father in heaven. So if that's the result, right, if you are letting your good works shine before others so they'll imitate you and you'll inspire them, well, then that's okay, right? But if you're doing it out of a selfish reason, then it's not okay. That's why you have to get back to the internals. You can't just look at the externals to see if a, something is good or not. 
you have to look at the internal, like what is the motivation? What is the effect? What is what is going on? So I'm not going to go into all of the details on the proving the contraries, uh, but that's uh, that's that's where that's going, proving contraries. So I want to get back to um, let's talk about this Lord's Prayer. Oh, I could talk on and on and on about prayer, but this is another issue about this vain repetitions. People say, well, well, what does that mean? Is that what the Catholics are doing? I'm like, no. I think having the same prayer that you pray uh, isn't by itself a vain repetition. Like, we pray the same exact prayer verbatim for the sacrament prayer, right? There are times when um, it, it is almost certain that Jesus and the early church prayed the Psalms verbatim, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I wish we had more more of that in the church where we would have pre-scripted prayers that we pray. But outside of ordinances, we don't really do that. Uh, but to some extent, the Temple Endowment is a pre-scripted, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a prayer exactly, but a pre-scripted liturgy that is not improvised. Uh, so... No, but anyway, and then also there's the example of Psalm 136. If you look at Psalm 136, it has the same refrain 26 times. Kileo uh, lamachasto, which means, uh, and his mercy endures forever, and his, his loyal love endures forever. Uh, but anyway, so that's, uh, Psalm 136 has the same, it's just repetition thing. I think it has to do with, with vain repetitions. Are you doing it? for external purposes, or does the repetition help you connect with God and help you uh, find a space of contemplation and clarity and uh, release from the world and closeness with God? Like, if you do the repetitions right, it's fine. If you don't do the repetitions right, well, that's not the repetitions that are prob the problem. It's, it's the uh, frame that you're bringing to it. And by intensifying this ethic, he's making it, Jesus is making things harder, right, rather than easier. You would think, oh, if you're just doing it internally, then you're, yeah, but that's actually, you can get the surface right on a lot of things. I want to talk a little bit about prayer as resistance. Let's look at Luke chapter 18. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go there, but this is the parable of the persistent widow, where there was a widow who was wanting to get justice and the judge was wicked, and so she kept annoying him over and over and over and over. And God's, Jesus says, that's what prayer is like. If, if, if you can get a wicked person to do what's right by annoying them, well, then all the more will God do what's right. But anyway, this goes back to activism. I honestly think that we can have this spirit of holding God accountable. And holding God accountable to God's promises is one of the best ways we can we can show trust in God's character. And let's also talk about one of the most important things for prayer is it's uh, very much a way of having a direct direct contact with God. People say, well, there's this hierarchy in the church. Well, yes, but we have direct contact with God. We can talk to God. Wait, I don't have to go through through anyone, right? I don't have to go through any straight person. And God knows me. God loves me. God's more eager to hear than we are to to speak. So that should change how we do our our resistance to injustice, right? We should know that God's on our side and listening to us. And even when we don't have the right words, Romans 8 says that the Spirit groans with us and, and utters when we don't have the words, the Spirit is right there interceding for us. I want to talk briefly about the practice of prayer because and and this is not going to be judgmental. We'll have talk about judgmentalism later. But this isn't to say anything bad about anyone's uh, maturity or faith journey at all. But most of us Christians in every denomination, even if we, we really believe and, and we're really faithful Christians, our prayer lives aren't that good. We end up saying the same old things about the same old things. And that can be boring. And I'm not saying that you should stop praying the same old things about the same old things, to use Don, Donald Whitney's phrase. That's what God wants. God wants us to pray, this, pray about the same old things. But we don't have to do it always the same way. We don't have to always say 
um, the exact words. Uh, and even without having verbatim memorized prayers, a lot of us in our culture, we end up saying kind of the same five or six words shuffled around, like nourish and strengthen. We'll pray for the, the safety of those that aren't here, that they might make it next time, right? I don't mean, like I said, I'm not being judgmental. Like, like there's nothing wrong with someone's faith journey or spirituality if they're doing this. It's an issue of tools. Do they have other tools? If they don't have other tools, then then uh, they shouldn't be blamed for, uh, for, for these things. So Don Whitney is trying to give people better tools, and he has this book called Praying the Bible published by Crossway, and I think it's really a cool book. And I'm, I, he also has videos. Go on to YouTube and search for Praying the Bible with Donald Whitney, and you'll get the gist of what he's doing. And what he does is he says what you should do is you know f- actually take a text of the Bible and go line by line and pray through it. Not, not, not using the words of that, the Bible as your prayer, you can do that too, but to use that as a springboard for some of your own uh, phrasing and some of your own emphases, and you'll find a very fresh and vibrant prayer life because it will help you get out of the rut of saying the same old things about the same old things. Which is not a problem to pray about the same old things because the stuff that's most important to us, our family, our health, our lives, our loved ones, like, yeah, the stuff we pray for, that's fine, right? But just trying to reinvigorate that will be will be important. Uh, let's talk about fasting for a second. This goes back to what we've already said about internal versus external thing. Um, the one thing I want to say about fasting is it's about intentionality and, and the prayer that goes with it and how are you dedicating and being um, intentional about it, being deliberate about your fast. It's not just going without food. It's, well, what is the del- what is the deliberate purpose for that? And how are you purposing this towards God? And how are you taking this feeling of hunger that you have and turning it into hunger towards God? I think there's many things we could do. Let's talk about laying up treasures in heaven. Uh, there's a lot of anti-capitalist uh, material in in Jesus, but also in the endowment. Like almost every time money is mentioned in the endowment, it is a very serious sting about um, using money as an idol. And of course, money is one of the strongest idols here because we cannot love God and mammon. We've got to... Uh, and we cannot love two masters. I, there's some just really important stuff here that is that is so good that I don't. I probably can talk about this for a long, long time. But let's let's talk about. Um, I, I want to go back and let's talk about the prayer for just a second, and kind of meditating over the Lord's prayer, and seeing how radical it is. Like praying for God's kingdom to come. Oh, not this is what the gays hear all the time. Oh, well, God will fix it in the next life. No, that's not what we're praying for. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily. No, not in the next life. It doesn't help us if we get our bread in the next life. Like where's our bread? Where is the bread for queer people in this life? Give it to us today. Like, why am I seen as radical for demanding justice for my people today? People say, oh, well, it takes time. You got to be patient. It will eventually. No, today. Today is a good day to end discrimination against my people in the church. It's probably not going to happen today. But why not today? Why not now? If not now, when? To recycle Rabbi Hillel's words. If not now, when? Like, this is just as good a time as any. Any any time you're going to find some objection to, to making the change. But this is about a, um, a prayer from the perspective of the oppressed. Reaching out to our, our Heavenly Father. Seeking, uh, seeking justice in this world. In this world, anyway. So... I want to talk about this uh, this treasure business again. Do not store up. Do not. This is six twenty and twenty one. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to talk about this. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
I have long advocated for financial transparency in the church to see, well, where is where is the church spending its money? Um, other churches are financially transparent. They are accountable for where the money goes. We can see how many millions they're spending uh, on civil rights cases against my people. Like, I want to see, is it one million? Is it 10 million? How many millions of dollars have they spent fighting the civil rights of my people? I get that you can kind of, within the church, create your own rules. But to, to, to take church money and use it to fight the civil rights uh, of my people, like, why are they doing that? How much are they doing that? Like, how, like I want to know how much money is going, how much money went against the Equal Rights Amendment, right? I don't know. We'll never know. But let's talk about financial transparency because the church was financial tra financially transparent up until the 50s. They published budgets. They pu published their expenses. You could see where the money was going. Now, it's not an issue of, oh, I don't trust them because here's the thing. The financial geniuses that lead the church, they know what they're doing. Like, you ask me to store up $100 million, oh, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that, right? But... The church's assets could be um, over $500 million if you count all the real estate, if you count all the temples, if you count all the properties, um, if you count their investments. Like it, everything could be between $500 and a billion. Um, now, I'm not saying that that's wrong to store up treasures on earth like that. What I'm saying is let's be accountable to that. Where is the money coming from? Where is it going? Uh, because that would be the greatest moral witness the Church of Jesus Christ could do, I think. Well, I shouldn't say the greatest, but it could be one of the greatest moral witnesses to publish their budget. Because every budget is a moral document. You can show the you can show the world where your priorities are, right? I if any you can see where their priorities are through their budget. Right? Where are they spending it? How are they spending it? And that would be shy, letting your light so shine before others. Right? I think it could be a great moral witness. It could build trust. It could build. Um, it could. Uh, it could build transparency. For where your treasure there is. Wait, let me. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's the thing, listeners. I don't know where the church's treasure is, so I don't know where the church's heart is. I honestly don't know. I don't know where, how they spend their money. I mean, we get some indications. A lot of it is spent on um, buildings and grounds. Um, a lot of it is spilt, spent on education as well. Some of it goes to humanitarian purposes. Um, anyway, but I don't know where their, where their treasure is. Anyway, uh, but this is one of those things where, where we have to, to balance and, and, uh, and, and prove contraries and go back to the, to the let your light sh so shine before others from Matthew 5.16. Let's talk about this section on do not be anxious. This is chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And this is something I struggle with myself because of economic uh instability like i'm a a few paychecks away from not or i'm a i could if well let me put it this way without a few paychecks if i missed a number of paychecks in a row for some reason i would have a very significant problem with housing and food and the basic necessities of life but jesus is saying well don't worry about that and that is real hard to to think about but it goes back to, well, what's the priority? Do not worry about your life. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. This is verse 25. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't there more to life than food and more to body than clothing? That is real hard to, to hear. Um, but Jesus himself was not speaking from the cheap seats on this. He was speaking out of poverty to poverty. So... Um, there's something that we have to uh, have to lean into right here, even when it's difficult. 
Now, what I will say is, let's talk about the thing that every cop says after they kill an unarmed person of color. They say, I feared for my life, which is exactly what Jesus condemns here. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. And the racist cops say, I feared for my life. Look, your life isn't worth killing someone else over. I mean, as someone who is uh, dedicated to the principles of nonviolence, I would rather die than kill someone else. People say, oh, it's self-defense. Yeah, well, self-defense can be used to justify almost any uh, any violence, any. Uh, I'm just so frustrated at this. But to me, I'd rather die than kill, kill another child of God. Because, well, if I die, well, I'm going to be raised again. Like, right? I'm, I'm going to, I don't know. Maybe it is hard to talk with, without James here to, to, to feel like I'm talking to someone. Oh, well, we'll see how this goes. But let's talk about this, being anxious. Let's talk about the issues around war and climate change. Because so many of us are anxious about uh, food and clothing. So many of us want to stockpile our riches, right? So many of us, um, which is condemned earlier, as we talked about, storing up your treasure on earth. This has an impact on the climate. When people stockpile material goods and material comforts, that has an effect on our climate. It has effect on wars and rumors of wars, right? So a lot of the evils in the world come from this desire for economic uh, prosperity. So I just want to name that there. And we're just starting chapter 7. Boy, I've got a lot of time. Oh, it's only 36 minutes. Well, we'll see what happens. Now let's talk about judging others. And this is really, really interesting because this is where you have to lean into the wisdom and spiritual maturity. Because sometimes you do need to judge people. Sometimes you don't. But as I said last time, part of it is, are you willing to be held by the same standard? People say, oh, Derek, you're disrespectful to the church leaders. Like, no, I'm not. I'm, I respect them a lot. I respect them the same way I want to be respected. And I would find it disrespectful if, if okay, pretend I'm standing on someone's foot and I didn't know it. And someone came up to, and someone didn't tell me that. I would, I would feel offended. I would say, look, you didn't trust me enough to tell me I was hurting someone. You didn't think that I would fix it. You didn't. You thought so little of me. You didn't think that I would would stop doing the wrong thing as soon as I was told. And you didn't trust me with the truth. I find that to be disrespectful, right? So people say that I don't respect the the authorities. I do. I do respect the general authorities enough. To, to treat them the way I would want to be treated, which is another principle here in, well, right here. This is verse seven, 12, uh, chapter 7, verse 12. In everything, treat others as you would want them to treat you, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. So, so yeah, I, uh, but I was talking about proving contraries. So this business about judging others is are you being judgmental? Are you hurting someone? What is where does this lead? Um, does it lead to improvement or does it lead to uh, to some some devastating outcome? Like what is loving here? What points to Christ? What comforts the afflicted and what afflicts the comfortable? Those are all the questions you have to ask. Whether um, and how and by what means you're going to be judging. There's a play, time and a place to judge, and there's a time and a place to refrain from judging. So you have to balance this. Okay. Um, I could talk more about judging others, but I think I talked about that last time. Let's talk about ask and it will be given, because this connects with the prayer that we talked about earlier with the um, with the, the prayers. And I talked a little bit about prayer as holding a prayer as resistance, prayer as holding God accountable. And I think this is where ask, seek, and knock, because when we ask, seek, and knock. We are holding God accountable to God's promises. Right here, right here, we get a promise. Ask, seek, and knock. But somehow, when queer people ask, we get slammed. When queer people seek, 
We say, oh, you don't have that authority. When queer people knock, they say, well, you don't deserve to have the door opened unto you. The door is only for straight people. So, like, no, I have been commanded to, commanded to ask, seek, and knock. Right? People talk about, oh, uh, uh, here's here's one important thing. Whatever whatever social justice thing you're doing, find what commandment covers it. And just tell people, look, I'm obedient to this commandment. I have been commanded to ask. I have been commanded to seek. I have been commanded to knock. So how dare you criticize me for doing what I'm commanded to do? When I seek the equality and the liberation of queer people in the church, that's that's not anti-God. It's not rebellious. In fact, it would be rebellious if I didn't do it because I've been commanded to ask, seek, and knock. I love the um, um, this thing about uh, – let's talk about this in connection with authority for a little bit because we get a little bit about authority in the, in the last section on the words of, of Jesus, verse 28 and 29, that conclude and summarize the whole Sermon on the Mount, that, that Jesus speaks with authority. And let's talk about what authority he had. He didn't have institutional authority. He didn't have hierarchical authority. He didn't have church authority. He didn't have the priesthood in any recognizable sense. Like there's a there's now we can you know afterward retroactively say well he was this high priest. He wasn't the high priest literally. He wasn't a Levite. He was not literally a priest. He came out of nowhere, right? And what was his authority? He could speak the truth and people knew he was speaking the truth, right? He cut to the heart of what was going on. And I wish the church leaders had that authority, right? If they if they did like Jesus, if they spoke something, I'm like, wow, that's so obviously true, that would work. That would be authority. But instead of actually being transparent and saying something that's so obviously true, what they do is they hide behind uh, their reasoning, they they say, well, just take my word for it. They say, well, you don't have access to the special thing that I do, and you're just having to trust that queer people don't deserve a full human life. Like, where's show me your show me your receipts, show me your work, show me your evidence, you know, evidence, show me your thinking, like show me. In a church where priesthood runs by persuasion and patience, I have seen very little persuasion on this issue from the leaders, and I have seen very little patience on this. They're so impatient. They're like, we're right, and we've been right, so so stop talking, right? Or I've seen very little persuasion. They have given no argument other than, well, we're right. And I think they, they realize this, because if they had good arguments, they would give them, right? But they realize that none of their arguments work, so they just fall back on this claim of authority. Well, we're prophets and, rev- and revelators, so this is what we feel in our tummy is right, so it's right. I'm like, no, that's not how priesthood works. That is not how DNC 121 works. That's not how Jesus worked. Let me tell you, let me tell you, if you don't remember anything that I said from this podcast, remember this quotation that I'm about to tell you. Even Jesus did not say, you gotta take my word for it because I'm the boss, Right? He said, you can see for yourself whether I'm right or not. He was the best priesthood example. He says in John 7, verse 17, If anyone wants to do God's will, he will know about my teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. Let me say that again, because this is so good that if that if if uh, if i uh, wanted to smuggle something into the bible i would put this in there and thankfully it's already there if anyone wants to do god's will he will know about my teaching whether it is from god or whether i speak from my own authority so jesus says here don't take my word for it you can see for yourself you can jesus says you can see for yourself whether i'm right or not he doesn't say well you got to obey my authority because of my position he never. He. he I, um, let me say. Does he ever say that? I'm not. I'm not. I don't know if I'm going to say he never says that. But when you look at his character, how he reaches out to people, speaks to them on terms that they can understand throughout the Book of John, throughout the uh, um, the Gospels, 
He, re- he meets people where they are. The brethren don't meet me where I am. They don't. And you can see that the brethren are scrambling for authority rather than having humility and, and actually leading with actual power on this issue. And they're doing something that Jesus didn't even do. Saying, well, I'm, I'm the boss. I'm right. Uh, you're wrong. You have no place in the church to, to criticize me. Um, I'm like, is that really how we want to run a church? A lot of evangelicals think we're a cult. Um, think that we have this mind control, think that we don't have freedoms, don't have rights, and people at the top dictate everything. Jesus says that's not how the church is supposed to work. He was very anti-hierarchies. Very anti-hierarchies. He did not set up a hierarchy, and he resisted every hierarchy he, he, he found. He was about the truth. He was about speaking the truth, whether it was costly. And I think that is the real reason why he says not to worry about your life. Because there's some things more important than preserving your life. Being a martyr for the truth. I'd rather die than cooperate with racism. I'd rather die than cooperate with Nazism. I'd rather die than cooperate with uh, any of these other evils. Because what does it profit if you gain the whole world, if you gain all this power, but you, you, you spend your soul? You sell out to the devil. And this goes back to the the temptation that we just had right before the Sermon on the Mount of not selling out to the devil, not giving in to these shortcuts. And let me tell you, racism is a shortcut. And these other shortcuts we were talking about were Satan doing the shortcuts to something good, right? And taking the the short way around rather than the long way around that involves moral development and and journeying and, and, and true... Uh, the, the whole mortal purpose. Racism is a shortcut to, shortcut to something bad. It's like, oh, I can look at a person and by their race tell something about them, right? Um, tell that they're inferior. I'm like, that makes no sense. Um, and I should also say it's not just the personal prejudices, but they're structural things as well that, that are independent of or, or parallel to individual one-on-one prejudice or discrimination, right? And we have to name that apart from any evil intention by anyone, we've got systems of racism that are perpetuated in the way things are, are constituted here. Um, anyway, so I've rambled on about this. I need to get back to my point about uh, the authority. And Jesus says, look, you can test me. You can see for yourself. You can see on your own terms. That's what Moroni's promise is. Moroni doesn't say, well, take my word for it. He says, look, you can gain your own testimony of what I'm saying. It's on you. You have the right to do that. Anyway, let's talk about the golden rule. Um, in verse 7, 12 through, 20, uh, 12 through 14, treat others as the way you would want them to treat you. This is something the the straight supremacists have failed to do. They haven't even thought for half a second about what it's like to be to be queer, most of them, right? How many straight people in the church would would divorce their their spouse and marry someone of a gender they're not attracted to in order to qualify for exaltation? Very few of them would do it. But that's what they're expecting of us queers. Where is love your neighbor as yourself? Where is treat one another as you would want to be treated? It's not there. They haven't thought for half a second what they're asking queer people in the church to do. They're violating one of the basic, most basic Christian principles. I remember talking to a sealer in the temple. One time we were doing sealings, and the sealer knew I was gay because he obviously had met me uh, even within two seconds, people know I'm gay. So he said, and he's probably about 70 years old, and he, and in between doing ceilings for the dead, uh, he turned to me and said, Brother Knox, I just realized that asking you to marry a woman would be like asking me to marry a man. And I thought to myself, this is the first time in 70 years you even thought about that? Wow, like... Wow. Like, you you don't realize what you've been asking us to do. Right? Where's the golden rule? Um, so, yeah, homophobes have failed to follow the golden rule. 
racists have have failed to follow the golden rule, right? Um, like why would why would anyone want? I just don't understand not treating black folk um, or other folk of color the way you would want to be treated, right? I like I don't understand that at all. And we talk about this veil of ignorance, right, with John Rawls. And this is this idea of, okay, let's structure things, but you don't know um, in advance which side of it you're going to be on. For example, uh, should, we have ra- should we have slavery or not, okay? Well, let's make that question, let's answer that before you know, before you show up and, and know whether you're going to be the slave or the master, Right. I think if we if we had to decide whether there's going to be racism independent of whether which side of it we're going to be on, we would all say, well, let's not have racism. I mean, let's not have slavery. Right. We would all say, I don't know which side of it I could end up as the slave. I could end up as the master. In that case, if I don't know which side I'm going to be on, let's just not have slavery. And we make better decisions behind this veil of ignorance, not knowing um what we what what side would we would be on and same thing with with racism like what, do i want racism if i don't know in advance whether i'm going to be born into this world as white or black um i would say let's not have racism right in, in case i turn out to be black or in case uh, but, and that's not the only reason you shouldn't have just selfish reasons to to avoid racism but why would we want to have racism like if you take a step back and not know um, like, would you want to be? Why would we want to have sexism if you didn't know in advance whether you're going to be uh, male or female or non-binary? Would we agree to have ra- sexism? We would say no. Let's not have sexism in case I end up on the wrong end of that. And I think, oh, I could ramble on this for hours and hours and hours, but. Um, Inherent in the golden rule is a severe condemnation of queerphobia, of transphobia, of economic inequality, like poverty. Like, would you want poverty in the world if you didn't know if you were going to be the poor person or not? We would say no. Let's have structure everything so that everyone gets their needs met. Right? Like, I love the fact that the golden rule is there. And this is another thing that if it weren't there, I would smuggle it in there. Like I would I would forge a text to put that in, in there. Like that's how beautiful I think it is. I would sneak it in there. But I don't have to sneak it in there. It's already there. Like it's already there. Like our scriptures are, are such a great foundation. And we'll talk about having a good foundation in just a second. Now let's talk about a tree and its fruit. We talked about this last time. And I'm not going to go over all this again. But the short version is... There is nothing in the Sermon on the Mount about um, holding up church hierarchy. Um, But there is stuff about holding brethren accountable. You will know false prophets by their fruit. We're supposed to. We're supposed to make that judgment call. Talk about don't judge. Here it says now you need to actually discern who the false prophets are. And I want to just say, and this is going to be controversial, but false prophet versus true prophet isn't a binary thing. We all in the church have the spirit of the testimony of Christ. We all have the capacity of prophecy. We all have the capacity to uh, misunderstand God's will. All of us. Me too. That's why I need to be accountable, right? I'm going to misunderstand God's will. But everyone in the church will. That's why we need checks and balances. And that's why we need to hold the brethren account. I'm not saying that they're false prophets. What I'm saying is, in a way, everyone is a blend of of true prophet and false prophet. Because we've all got those temptations. Um, And so we need to be very careful about that. Within this mortal world, God is working with imperfect people. So why can't I name that? Why can't we have safeguards in place for when the brethren are imperfect and that imperfection impacts me? Let's talk about I never knew you, okay, in, ver- in uh, verses 21 through 23. 
It's not enough to say the words, Lord, Lord. There's a bunch of them where Jesus will say, I never knew you. Um, I think I'm going to connect this with 1 Corinthians 13, where even if you have prophecy, even if you have revelation, even if you have all knowledge, but if you don't have love, it doesn't. You, you won't get any credit. You don't get credit for your calling. You don't get credit if you're a prophet of the Lord. Last time we talked about 13 out of 102 apostles have been excommunicated in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints since 1835 when we had the first Quorum of the Twelve. 13 out of 102. That's more than 10%. More than 10%, right? More than 10% of apostles in the Latter-day Church, um, or I mean in the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, in this dispensation, uh, have fallen away or excommunicated. Jesus, uh, all of them to some extent fell away. Uh, Peter denied and Judas uh, um, betrayed the Lord. So depending on how you count it, either they all fell away or, or one out of 12 fell away and or the other 11 were restored. But anyway, so we can't have this worship for 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 leaders this way and let's talk about building your house on the rock because this is really key for the resilience of people on the margins because we can't depend on straight people to get it right we can't depend on white people to get it right we can't depend on men to get it right we can't um depend on abled people to get it right uh, we have to have our house on our own rock um and here's the thing is if homophobia doesn't have a solid foundation in our church's tradition and scripture um, it's built on speculation and assumption and tradition. It's uh, shifting sand. Like if you look at the brethren's reasoning for the homophobia, there's no, there's no solid, there's no revelation that they can point to. There's no latter day clear revelation that's been canonized by the church that is is a, is a light from heaven that says, "Look, I get it. Here's the answer." Right? There's just a lot of guesswork. And that ha guesswork has been exalted into doctrine unfairly and without due process. Without due process, a lot of speculation. For example, the speculation that Jesus is married to a woman or was married to a woman, the historical Jesus. That's speculation. That has never been doctrine of the church. It has never been um, canonized as our as our doctrine. Let's talk about, and now Harold Beatty has problems, but he did say this very important quote in 1973. Here's what he says, quote, if anyone, regardless of his position in the church, were to advance a doctrine that is not substantiated by the standard church works, meaning the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, you may know that his statement is merely his private opinion. The only one authorized to bring forth any new doctrine is the president of the church who, when he does, will declare it as revelation from God, and it will be so accepted by the Council of the Twelve and sustained by the body of the church. And if any man speak a doctrine which contradicts what is the standard church works, you may know by that same token that it is false and you are not bound to accept it as truth." Close quote. Homophobia in the church contradicts this church standard works. All are alike unto God. Male and female are alike unto God. In Christ, there's no male and female. That's in our standard church works. There's nothing in our standard works that explicitly condemns all same-gender love. Not even in the Bible. All of the biblical passages uh, are, are only about the all of the explicit uh, passages in the in the Bible are about male-male relationships. There's nothing that prohibits in the Bible a, a relationship between two women. This category of, quote, homosexuality, which we don't use that word anymore, that wasn't even a category at the time. There is no blanket prohibition on all same-gender relationships anywhere in the Bible, in part because, like I said, it doesn't cover female-female uh, relationships. So there's no blanket prohibition on same-gender relationships anywhere in our standard works. It's, it's invented out of nowhere. I shouldn't say out of nowhere because we've got 
you know, we can see where it comes from, but it's not coming from God. There is no clear revelation. It would be different if we had official declaration three that came out that said, hey, look, Derek, this is the voice of the Lord. I know what you're asking about, and here's why it's not okay, or here's why it is okay, or here's what, where it's actually explicitly and deliberately addressing the modern questions we have. Like, I get in trouble for uh, for for trying to trying to say that we have a living prophet and let's use the living prophet, right? Now, notice this: we've got uh, things like this idea that Jesus was married. That has we you know church leaders have said that it's been rarely spoken from church uh, from general conference, if ever. That's not doctrine because we see, according to the Harold B. Lee's thing, if the president of the church wants to change or wants to add any new doctrine. The president needs to declare it as a revelation, which is accountability here, right? To actually publish it to the church as revelation and say this is uh, this is the word of the Lord, right? That's not, you know, even some random conference talk. That's not declaring it as a as a, a as an explicit revelation. You got to do that. You got to follow the standard procedures. You got to go through the proper channels. Not even the president of the church can change doctrine without going through the proper channels. One of which is making a public declaration that this is a revelation from God and it being accepted by the Quorum of the Twelve and it being accepted and sustained by the body of the church, right? We have these checks and balances, but we haven't used them since 1978, which is the last time we've had a revelation canonized by the body of the church. Anyway, let's talk about the, the authority of Jesus, and we talked about that a little bit more. Um, today's leaders, it's hard to see them as, as, as showing transparency in their discernment process. We don't know how they made their decisions. We don't, they don't show their work, which is opposite of how Jesus did it, how Paul did it. Paul loves to persuade. That's what's so beautiful about his letters. Now, he doesn't get everything right, of course, but he loves to put forth arguments. If, if the common perception in the church were true, Paul wouldn't have to write any of these letters. He could just write his conclusion and say, hey, this is Paul writing to you, you know, Corinthians. Stop doing this. I'm an apostle. He wouldn't even have to explain why. Or to the Galatians, hi, I'm Paul, an apostle. Do this. I don't have to explain why. Paul does not do that. Paul loves to persuade. He loves to bring people on board. He loves to include them in the decision-making process. He says, see for yourself, right? And, and maybe some of his arguments won't be persuasive today, um, such as uh, things he, well, anyway. But my point is, even Jesus loves to persuade, and that was, that is what is so captivating about the Sermon on the Mount, is that it's persuasive. It cuts to the heart, and I'm like, wow, even if it's hard for me to do this, I see that it's true, such as the stuff about uh, about money, about and not worrying for your life, all that other stuff. I see that it's true. Even if it's against my um, my instinct, I know it's true. Right? Jesus loves to persuade. Why don't the leaders love to persuade? Bring out their bring out their arguments, right? Anyway. Um and I and I think this is what, what uh, Joseph would have wanted is is to teach correct principles and let the people govern themselves rather than micromanage everything. In contrast to that, we have to have spiritual self-reliance, which comes from the bedrock of prayer and the bedrock of Scripture, where we have direct access to God. Um, I mean, Scripture isn't exactly direct access to God, but it's uh, access to the Lord's words apart from... Uh, the church hierarchy. Unfortunately, people in the church want to be spoon-fed. There's this culture of like, well, the brethren are the adults in the room, and we got to just do everything they say. But I don't like this idea of being spoon-fed. It's like DNC 58 says, 26 through 28, that we're not to be commanded in all things, that we're not to be slothful, that we're not to be waiting for the brethren to do everything. Anyway, I have rambled on long enough and I'm sure that um, uh, if I ramble anymore, it probably won't be be worth much to a lot of people. So what I'm going to do is close by hoping that people can take this to heart and even challenge what I say, right? Take my thing. If there's something I said that's wrong, go with Jesus and not with me, 
right? So see for yourself whether what I said was true or not. Like compare what I said with the scriptures. Like study the scriptures on your own. Um, and we will all be better off if we did that. Anyway, so let's let, let me close by saying I hope everyone is able to take away some um, some value from from the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most important texts in in the scriptures that it re, that if you do a detailed analysis, which I didn't have time to do, like go through and think about these things prayerfully, thoughtfully, and do the work and um, tap into your own internal sense of access to God, independent of the hierarchies, right? Um, prove contraries and, and find spiritual maturity. See where the spirit is leading you. Let your shine, let your light shine before others, and um, and realize that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you see this pattern of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, beginning with the the Beatitudes, comforting the afflicted. Anyway, so I should close by saying thank you for this. You can find Beyond the Block at BTBLDS on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Beyond the Block. Check out um, Brother Jones's course uh, on on um, uh, on anti-racism work within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Uh, I hope everyone has a very blessed uh, Black History Month, and uh, and I'll see you next time. Bye bye, everyone. <laughs>